Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. All right, everyone, welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. We have a great episode in store for you today. I'm Nina Pantic, and Irina Falcone will be on in just a second. Our special guest is former ATP pro and CEO of Tennis Evolution, Jeff Salzenstein. Jeff was an excellent junior in Colorado before going to Stanford, where he'd end up playing number one. After school, he gave himself three years to make it as a pro, but serious ankle and knee injuries ruined that plan. Instead of quitting, he kept chasing his dreams and would win five ATP Challenger titles and reach a career-high ranking of exactly number 100 in 2004. The feat made him the first-ever American to break into the top 100 at the age of 30. After retiring a few years later, he put all of his focus into coaching back home in Colorado. In 2010, he started Tennis Evolution, an online destination for tennis lessons and coaching videos. Every day, he uses his decades of playing and coaching experience to help players of all ages and abilities in Colorado and all over the world online. Okay, listeners, it's time to meet Jeff Salzenstein. Okay, Jeff, welcome to our show. It's awesome to have you on. Tell us where you're at in the world and how you're doing. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, bringing me on today. I'm in Denver, Colorado, coming from my green room here. And uh, yeah, been, uh, I'm from Denver and moved back to Denver after I started playing uh after i stopped playing pro tennis and uh yeah now i'm trying to help as many people as i can through the interwebs get better at tennis so uh denver there's a lot of high altitude there it's uh not the easiest place i would say to play tennis at Mm -hmm. how did you decide like okay i'm just gonna stick with denver even though is there a huge tennis population there Sure. So I think we, I think we got to go back in time a little bit. And, uh, when my parents split up, when I was five years old, I moved to Denver with my mother and, uh, you know, that's where her family was from. And, uh, I, I had the tennis bug. My father was a played division one college tennis at mighty university of Northern Colorado. And, uh, I just played tennis at, at a young age. And so I grew up in Denver. I was a public high school kid. I didn't go to an Academy. I, I like to joke. I spent one week uh, with Rick Macy in Greenleaf, Florida, before he moved to South Florida. I spent one week there. I played a practice match against Jennifer Capriati when I was 14. And uh, remember all the top juniors there. But after a week at an, an academy uh, format set up, I was like, I can't do this. I got to live at home. So, uh, you know, I grew up in a relatively normal household, blended family. And so when I stopped playing professional tennis, I was 33 and I was at that crossroads that a lot of pro athletes are in. Uh, here I was a Stanford graduate and had no idea what I was going to do with the rest of my life. It was a very scary time. Um, and, and situations kind of created a, a dynamic where it, it was the best move for me to come back to Denver, to come back home and uh, started coaching. And uh, that's what you do when you've never had a real job before. I started coaching. And yeah, I mean, I, I thought about this, that I could go to Florida or Texas or California or maybe work with top pros, but I chose lifestyle first uh, over anything else. And so have been able to carve out a, a nice 
lifestyle that that I enjoy uh, in Denver. I love I love this community. I love this uh, state. Uh, but it's certainly not a tennis hotbed. Um, there, we're not we're not churning out players. Uh, there aren't a lot of players coming to find me in the hinterlands out here. Uh, but s- interestingly enough, uh, very weak on the junior side, but on the adult side, after Atlanta, Georgia, it's the second. Uh, I think it's the second most popular. Uh, USTA league setup at Denver after Atlanta. So it's a sneaky, sneaky adult league uh, tennis town, but uh, on the junior side, it's, it's definitely not very strong. But you were a very, very good junior. And then you went to Stanford where you worked way up to number one, but we want to talk about this pro career of yours. Did you always want to go pro when you were a kid? I mean, talented juniors kind of always have it in their heads. Did you? No, again, I mean, I was raised uh, I was raised that academics were very important. Uh, you know, that, that was what we were focusing on in, in, in my household. And I happened to be a good national junior at, at 12. I, I won the nationals, but at 15, I had dropped all the way to 69 in the country. I was triple crowned at Kalamazoo, which means you lose first round singles, doubles, and backdrop. So if you're almost 16 years old and you're getting triple crown at Kalamazoo, you're not going to play pro tennis. Uh, that was not, that was not part of the plan. And so, uh, I, I, I recalibrated. I was a late bloomer. I grew, I finally went through puberty at like 17 or 18. I caught up to some of the other players and got my ranking up high enough so that Dick Gould, uh, happened to notice me. And so that, that was the path. My dream, I remember at 12 years old, my dream was to go to Stanford. That was the premier school. They were churning out pros, but, but playing at the next level, it was like this big dream, but I didn't think it was possible coming from Denver. So I went to, I went to college, uh, had a crappy serve, couldn't break hundred miles an hour, played number five singles my freshman year. I was on my way to being, you know, being a part of a tech startup or, or a lawyer or a finance guy. And then uh, I grew three inches in college. I added 20 miles an hour to my serve. And next thing you know, I was kind of a, a power player all of a sudden. So kind of like a mini Annie Roddick when he was a junior and he developed a big game. It's kind of what happened to me at, at the level I was playing at. And so that gave me an opportunity to try the pro tour after I graduated. Wow, that's awesome. So what did you major in in Stanford? I mean, you said that you were on your way for the lawyer <laughs> tech startup thing. So what'd you major yeah. in? Well, uh, I majored in tennis. Uh, that was what I did most, but <laughs> on the academic side, I, I was an economics major and, uh, I, I really, I didn't really have, I mean, again, I, I, my, my career kind of took off in college, my sophomore year, I jumped to play number two, my last two years I played number one. And so it, my junior year is when I actually thought, wow, I'm going to, I'm going to give the pro tour about three years, give it a shot. And so, you know, grateful that I went four years that I got my degree, that I have an economics degree, but I can't say that um, I, I knew what I was going to do with that uh, in the real world uh, once I started life after college. That's fair. Out of college and you hit the pro tour, how did you find the pro tour grind right away? I know that you had some injuries in the three-year gap that you gave yourself to make it, right? Oh, definitely. I mean, there's, there's stories upon stories of my journey. And uh, that's one of the things I'm so passionate about as a coach is, you know, I have that perspective of the adversity, the injuries, the setbacks that I think I can bring to students and clients, you know, on the tennis side and also in the, in the high performance side. So uh, when I, my junior year, I got to the semis of the NCAAs 
and uh, our team won the national championship. We had an undefeated year with Scott Humphreys, who had won junior Wimbledon the year before. He came in as a freshman. Paul Goldstein, he won uh, 15 Kalamazoo's, I think. Um, no, but I think he won three or four in a row. And so we had an undefeated season. And after that year, I actually thought about turning pro. I was like top five in college that year, got to the semis, but I decided to come back because my family was like, what are you, what are you doing? You've gone three years. You might as well just go the fourth and, and get your degree. So I came back my senior year and it was a really tough year because of the expectations and the uncertainty of what was, uh, what was next. And my senior year was not as good as my junior year. I lost first round singles of the NCAAs, even though we, we upset UCLA, your alma mater uh, in the finals of the team championship. We came out of nowhere to beat them. But when I turned pro, I remember this distinctly. It was, you know, we graduate in June. We're on the quarter system. And uh, my kind of manager at the time was advising me on my schedule. And he said, listen, don't play the USTA circuits because it's just, it's like dog eat dog. It's, it's so rough. We're going to send you overseas or over the border in this case. So I go to Mexico to play in a satellite, my first tournament ever. And I fly into Mexico City and I get on a bus and I go to Puebla, Mexico. I don't know if you guys have been to gals have been to Puebla before, but it's like 8,000 feet. You can see the volcano, uh, you know, from the courts. You're playing with pressureless balls, which are different than the ones we use in Colorado. And I was playing a guy from Guatemala that was about five foot six and he was ranked 750 in the world. And the court was slanted like this. This is my first pro pro match <laughs> after playing at Stanford in front of 5,000 people in the, in the Georgia, in Athens and Georgia. And it was just incredible. And nobody's watching. And I lose four and one in about an hour and five minutes. And I come off the court as the, the Stanford All-American going, what did I just get myself into? <laughs> I'm, I'm in big trouble here. Um, and so there was panic mode that week, that first week in, in Puebla. Uh, but I recalibrated and ended up uh, getting to the finals the next three weeks and finished second in that satellite. And then uh, got a wild card. I remember I got a wild card into Indianapolis. That was the RCA at the time. I won my first round and, and lost to Mark Woodford. So I got some points there. And then in October, I went over to Portugal. Same deal. Instead of playing in the US, I went to Portugal. I played all these dirt ballers on, on a hard court in Portugal for four weeks and I won that satellite. And so that was kind of my springboard, having two good results in, in two foreign countries and kind of getting my ranking up around 300 in about four months. So um, luckily, you know, my transition wasn't, uh, that first year wasn't that tough. It was the next year getting from 150 in the world to try to break the top 100. That was, that was the big, that was the bear for me. That was the, that was the thing that I really had a hard time with. Yeah, the sophomore year is always the toughest. Um, but I got to ask, so you lose 4-1 and one to the sky in yeah. Puebla, Mexico, and then you go and you do remarkably well those next, the following three weeks. Was there something that changed? Did you talk to someone? Because, I mean, that's a, that's a big shift. And, and you said you went into panic mode. I just want to know. I'm just curious, where, where, where did your mind go after that? Yeah. Well, obviously the initial was panic. Like, what am I doing? Am I good enough? Uh, you know, if I can't beat a guy that's 750 in the world, uh, how am I going to make it out here? Those were the, you know, the initial thoughts, but I think, you know, I probably talked to my parents, you know, my stepfather, a uh, super grounded guy, my father also, my mother too. I mean, I, I was raised in a very grounded environment. I would say, you know, again, pretty functional situation. So, I kind of had that backbone, even as a kid, you know, I, I won a bunch of sportsmanship awards. 
my, my, my stepdad wrote me a poem when I was 12 about what it means to be a champion and, and to play with character and integrity. And so I think I had that foundation. So when the, you know, what hit the fan, I, I had a tendency, I had the ability to bounce back. And I think that, you know, obviously all, all great players or good players that end up having success, they're the ones that handle adversity the best. You know, the, everyone's going to make mistakes. Everyone's going to fail. Everyone's going to have adversity, but I think it's the ones that can turn it around the fastest. And I think, you know, you just get back to work, uh, all the, the lessons of losing bad, you know, bad losses in the juniors, you get back to work and you refocus. And I remember I was really tight, uh, that second week in that first round match. Cause I knew if I lost, I think I was going into the qualifying of the third week. This is before they had futures. You, you, you built up circuit points. And so I remember being really tight that next match, but as you all know, as soon as you win a couple matches, you start to get the confidence. You start to feel a little bit better. And that's, that's pretty much what happened you just, you start stringing those matches together and you get on, you get on little win streaks and then you start to believe in yourself again. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Hey everyone, you're listening to an episode with Jeff Salzenstein as he tells us what it was like to crack the top 100 at the age of 30. Keep listening for more. All right, it's a good lesson to actually apply to pretty much everyone in any kind of field and every, every kind of sport. But let's fast forward a little bit. You go through a couple of years on tour, you go through these injuries, you go way past the three years that you initially planned on. And then at the age of 30, in 2004, you crack the top 100 by reaching exactly number 100 for exactly one week. Mm-hmm. So now you can always say you're top 100. I mean, imagine if, imagine if it was 101. How, That's right. What did this mean to you? Well, the funny thing too, is I think on Wikipedia for a while, I don't know if it's changed because, you know, someone can go in and edit those things. Um, I think it said my career high was like 91 in the world. So people wouldn't start to announce that. And I would look at them like, okay, okay. If you want to say I was 91, but I was really a hundred. Um, yeah, my journey, my journey to the top 100 was, I mean, I think it was very, very interesting, you know, all the ups and downs. And before I share that experience real quickly, I want to touch on probably one of the most pivotal moments in my career. And it's usually where I start a lot of podcasts or interviews. It was, um, my match with Michael Chang at the U S open. So I was six, 16 months into my pro career. That second year, I was about 140 in the world. I'd gotten a wild card into the U S open. I beat Michael Thielstrom in the first round. I think he's about 60 in the world and I'm playing Michael Chang on stadium court. He's number two in the world. And I remember I had 20 people in the box, my family, my friends, uh, my fraternity brothers from Stanford, my ex-girlfriend who now wanted to be my girlfriend again because I was playing (laughs) Michael Chang at the US Open. You know, a lot of stuff happening in New York, uh, 1997, back in the day. And I remember uh, winning that first set. I, I hit a, you know, I'm a lefty. I hit a wide slice. I come in, I hit a backhand angle volley to win the first set. And I had this smile on my face like, oh my gosh, I've arrived type of thing. But I always tell people that's when the match ended. And they look at me like, what do you mean? That's when the match ended. The match ended because 
the anxiety and the, the self-belief around that, basically the dominant thought in my head during that match or leading up to that match that day was, hey, whatever you do, don't embarrass yourself in front of the world tonight, which we all know is flawed thinking. It's limited thinking. And I didn't really have anyone to help me kind of check that. These were the silent uh, thoughts and the demons inside my head. So I win the first set and then I lose the next three sets and everyone you know, thought I played a great match. I was on my way to the top 50. The next day I signed with Pete Sampras's agent, Jeff Schwartz. And uh, I remember just after that moment, putting so much pressure on myself to, to break the top hunter and to keep going and to be one of the next, next great Americans or whatever they, whatever they do uh, when they, they pump people up. And so three months after that match, I had pain in my ankle uh, in the off season and it was misdiagnosed for eight months Finally ended up having surgery on my ankle. Six months after that, I hurt my knee in my first tournament back at the Miami Open, and I had another knee surgery. So within two years, I had two surgeries, and I lost my ranking. My protected ranking had dropped to like 360, and I was essentially starting over at 26 years old. And so, but it was during that time that I, I started delving into all things high performance. I went to my first yoga class. I started studying organic food. I started drinking green drinks. I was in the locker room drinking green drinks at 26, 27 years old. And everyone was looking at me like I was a nut. And now that's like normal. <laughs> normal. Now. That's so normal. I was doing all the weird stuff uh, 20 years ago. Now it's mainstream. And, um, but that was the pivotal moment that changed me because I was like, how can my body be breaking down at 24 years old? I've got to figure this out. So I studied natural healing. I got into acupuncture. I went to chiropractors. I drank alkaline water. I did all of it. You name it. I was testing everything. I did all the crazy diets. And so that really shaped me, shaped my career as a player, but then also as a coach and, and now all the things that I'm doing online as well. And so that really set the stage for, you know, 28 years old, I moved to Atlanta, uh, worked with a coach there for a couple of years who, who showed me some secrets that I hadn't learned before. And I remember I was about to crack the top hundred and I got to the semis of a challenger in Calabasas, Florida, uh, Calabasas, California. And I'm in the semis and I'm playing a guy by the name Evo Karlovich. At the time he's about 24. He's like 45 now. He's still playing. And he was just starting to break through. And I'm playing in the challenger and the ball's bouncing over my head. And I lose six and four, but then I flew to Lyon, Mexico. And it was back in Mexico where I won that challenger. And that was the match when I when I won in Lyon at this 50,000 challenger that got me to break the top hundred and also got me main draw into uh, Wimbledon. And so I think it lasts, I think I was in the top hundred for a couple of weeks for, you know, a cup of coffee. And then I moved back down a little bit. Uh, but yeah, it was been a crazy journey. Uh, one that I would not change for anything because of all the lessons that have been learned. And I like to think it made me a better coach because of everything that I went through in my twenties as a player. That is such a good, good story and so many ups and downs. But you mentioned the top 100 and you mentioned being, you know, introduced as top 100. How would your life be different if it was like 101? Would you be top 200, top 150? Like, what would you classify right. yourself? Maybe I just, in the marketing, I'd probably just say, you know, top 101 and kind of make a joke out of it, right? Mm, um, I don't know what, to... probably top 150, but yeah, I mean, maybe I would put a hook in there and say, yeah, I, I, I'm one of the best, I was top 102 in the world. And 
people would be like 102. What do you mean? So <laughs> I probably try to find some angle with it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think now looking back again on my career and now I can kind of use that with my marketing, it's definitely a nice touch that I was top hundred in, in singles and doubles. That is a very nice touch. I mean, not a lot of people can say that. I, people right. all the time, I, I know that I've talked to many people in my lifetime. When you tell them, oh yeah, I was top hundred, they just assume that it's just a casual thing. That's not a big deal. But if you ask them if they're a lawyer or something, oh, are you the top hundredth lawyer in the world? Yeah. So pat yourself on the back, Jeff. Thank you. Oh, I, I definitely, <laughs> I pat myself on the back. I, what I also get a kick out of, and you were already alluding to it, is that you know, the top 100 at, at the time that I broke the top hundred, I was the 10th highest ranked American. And, you know, at that time, I think it was, I don't know if Agassi was still, you know, Agassi, Agassi might've just retired, but you know, you have Roddick, you had Dent, you had Gamble, you had Gimble, like James Blake, like that whole crew. And so, you know, I'm 10th in the whole country. Like, you know, that's per, like, if I was 10th in major league baseball or 10th mm -hmm. in basketball or even a hundred in basketball, mm -hmm. you know, I'd be making 10 million a year and everything would be paid for. And I'd have my whole own team and physio, like people just the regular folk, as you know, they don't understand the business model that, that is flawed in pro tennis, uh, how good top hundred. I mean, it's, people understand, I think people in the know understand how good 100 is, but I don't think they realize, you know, how tough it is to get there, how tough it is to stay there, how tough it is to make a living, all the things that come with it. Um, so you definitely have to love the sport. You have to love learning. You have to love the kind of the, the mentality of seeing how good you can be at something. Um, Cause it's a bit of a trap. It's, it's a bit of a trap that you're on this journey thinking you can maybe get to 75 or 50 or 20 or whatever that level is. And it's kind of that never ending cycle. And so Obviously, as you all know, it's very important to have a, a strong support system and, and, and the right information to help you get to that next level. And that's sometimes hard to find. It is. It is. How did you transition, though, from this playing career being around the 100 at 30 and then retiring at 33 not that long after? Sure. So, you know, in full transparency, I turned, you know, I turned 30. I qualified at the U.S. Open a few months before my 30th birthday. So I was 29. I qualified there. I broke the top hundred, you know, six months later after the age of 30, you know, it, the next three years, I had big aspirations, you know, of the next level because my body was feeling better than ever. I was learning all these cool things now. And, and by the way, 29 then was kind of considered old to qualify at the U S open at 29. Now you're like a rookie. If you qualify at 29, I mean, it's unbelievable how the careers have the longevity and the careers have developed when I see these guys that are in their late thirties and even forties still out there, it's, it's truly remarkable shows what the, what's possible, what the human body can, can create. But I would say from 30 to 33, I struggled. I, you know, I still was getting these nagging injuries. I had a lot of foot issues. Um, you know, I didn't have a full-time coach. I had a part-time coach. I was just trying to find my way still. And so again, I think that's what helped me become a good coach early because I almost had to coach myself. I had to figure out things the hard way. So now when I'm working with a player, it's like, oh, it's like, just do this. And then it's like fixed in five minutes when I took me like 10 years. But I'm 33 years old. I was actually having some health issues um, in, in full transparency. I, I was feeling lightheaded. I was, my energy was off. And I really think maybe to get a little woo-woo here, but I think, I don't think I was aligned 
with my purpose or what I was supposed to do with my life. I wasn't feeling very fulfilled kind of chasing the rankings and, and the tour. And so I honestly think I kind of worked my, with the stress of it all. I kind of worked myself into an imbalance with my health health. So I wasn't feeling great. And, uh, I had a family member and a half brother who was having, uh, addiction issues. And I actually kind of witnessed it firsthand. Uh, he lived in Florida at the time. He's uh, much younger than I am. And when I saw him struggling, it was a very, it was actually a pretty traumatic event. When I saw him struggling, I was like, I got to do something. So it was almost like I couldn't quit the tour until something major happened like that. And so I, I literally like snap of a finger, uh, helped my brother out, moved back to Denver. Again, I didn't really know where to go. Like, what do I do? I need to coach. I need to make some money right away. I was helping out a family member. And that's why I moved back to Denver and I just started coaching and I just started grinding just like I did as a player and uh, just one step at a time, you know, one less at a time, one day at a time. And that was like 2008 and about 2009, 10, uh, me being the curious type. uh, I think that's, what's kind of propelled me to do the next thing. Uh, I started studying online marketing. I came across these guys that were talking about how you could build an online business uh, leveraging your expertise. And I was like, well, I I know a little something about tennis. So I started studying uh, when I wasn't coaching, teaching tennis in Denver, I started studying online marketing and I created my first blog. And then I learned how to create a product. I learned how to do email marketing. And so I just put my entrepreneur hat on and just one step at a time, And uh, that's kind of how it transitioned from player to high performance junior coach in Denver. And I had 20 or 25 players and helping them out. And then, then when I started launching these products and things took off, you know, seven, eight years ago, that's when I started moving more towards full-time online with, with tennis evolution. Hey everybody, you're listening to the tennis.com podcast with special guest, Jeff Salzenstein. He's telling us how he started his platform, Tennis Evolution, in 2010. Keep listening. And that was YouTube videos. So you make these different videos that people can watch and learn tennis from online. And you did this 10 years before COVID. <laughs> I did. And, and what's so funny is I'm so passionate about nutrition. So that was the thing that I was really into. And I remember thinking that that's what I was going to be making videos about. And if someone wants to go into the deep recesses of the YouTube and they want to Google my name and type in the word blueberry or the word avocado, they will find videos of me sitting at my desk in 2009 or 10 talking about the value of blueberries and avocados. <laughs> and I quickly realized after doing that, that I probably should stick to my strengths and get back on the court again. So it's pretty funny, you know, people might see tennis evolution and say, oh man, he's, you know, whatever he's kind of got this going on and he's been doing it a while. He's got all these products and it looks really clean or whatever, but I started with no business plan. I started with no clue. I was making blueberry and avocado videos with no microphone. (laughs) Like there was a lot of stuff going on that I didn't, I mean, I was clueless. And so uh, if anybody has a dream or a passion to, to start something, that is the key. You just have to start and you just have to get going and just take put, take one step at a time. And so, yeah, I launched those, I launched my first course at the end of 2011. And uh, it's so funny to see how the online market has evolved. And at that time I was actually there, I wasn't the first, there were 
four, probably three or four other guys doing this. And now every Tom, Dick and Harry makes, you know, tennis instruction videos. So, you know, pretty crowded market, but everything is crowded these days. So the key is figuring out how you can make yourself stand out, uh, how you can create a, a, a unique hook or big idea that people want to listen to you. Uh, because you're, the YouTube videos, like you said, I started the channel in like 2010. You're just trying to get attention and get people to actually watch your stuff and say, oh, wow, he, he, he kind of knows what he's talking about. And so my, my philosophy with the videos has always been to try to keep the videos um, as, as short as possible, uh, but still explain it in a comprehensive way and to get right to the point. If it's not simple, then you probably don't have it down yet. And so um, I, I like to think that I've been practicing communication for many years. I've always been fascinated by words and communication. So uh, getting in front of the camera and practicing and making these tutorials has been something I've been very passionate about. Honestly, I would make YouTube videos three to five minutes long, but the algorithm says it's better to make them eight to 12 minutes long. So I actually do stretch them out because it apparently helps the channel, but um, I like to give the tips, get right to the point. Um, not a lot of fluff, just teach, teach the concept and, and try to show my passion, have my passion come through in the videos. That's really awesome. Did you notice um, a spike during the COVID times of people watching more of these videos? Definitely. Um, yeah. I mean, the world had to adjust. The world is still adjusting. And you know, I, I knew eight years ago, nine years ago, this is where it was headed. And I think, again, I think that's probably maybe one of my strengths as I kind of see trends and patterns ahead of time. Yeah. I mean, I had a sense this is where it was headed and I could see it more and more. And what COVID did is it just accelerated things by 10 X. It actually forced people's hands to, to do this. But yeah, I mean, I've been doing zoom calls and, and other, uh, you know, creating digital content for, for all these years. So this is the way of the world. And, um, you, you know, ironically, maybe it's not ironic. I, I called, I, I started my website. It was Jeff Salzenstein tennis. And I did that originally just because of kind of the name recognition to get it out there. But I realized in about 2015, I said, well, if I ever decide to sell what I'm doing, or if I ever want to bring other coaches into the mix, uh, I've got to change the name because I don't, I don't want my name on it. And so I changed the tennis evolution, but it is true. If you're not, if you're not evolving, if you're not evolving and trying to stay ahead of the curve, you're going to be left behind. And that's, that's in everything, you know, that's whether you're a pro tennis player, if you're not getting three to 5% better every year, you're falling behind. If you're, you know, if you're not taking care of your health in a very progressive way, it's going to catch up to you. If you're just teaching tennis and relying on that income uh, without thinking about the digital side of things, you could get yourself into, you know, some challenging situations. So, um, yeah, I've always tried to kind of evolve and stay ahead of, stay ahead of the curve. Let me finish with one, uh, two things. Uh, one is, you know, my, my passion, uh, besides tennis is performance. So I've been studying performance, nutrition, uh, mindset, uh, injury prevention. I've been studying this for 20 years because, you know, I've lived it. And so the, like the next frontier for me is, is executive coaching, working with people outside of tennis. And I already, I do have a client now in the finance space that I'm working with. And so that kind of performance coach, you know, 
being successful, but also being fulfilled. You know, you all probably have seen a lot of tennis players that are very successful, but they're not that happy. If anyone listens to this and they, re- they resonate what I, what I, what I talked about, uh, they can reach out to me at Jeff at tennis evolution.com, or if they want to follow my, my tennis videos, they can go to tennis evolution or to my YouTube channel. So you guys are awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Thank Absolutely. you. Thanks for taking the time, Jeff. Sure. Been great. From the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, this has been the Tennis.com Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to stay caught up as we bring you new episodes every week. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every major listening app, as well as Tennis.com slash podcasts. You can also watch the videos of our episodes on Tennis Channel's YouTube page and Tennis.com's Facebook page. We're your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. We'd like to thank our editor and audio designer and video editor, Christina Koseva, as well as the entire Tennis Channel team for their support. Thanks for listening. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.